Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. This morning's reading is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. At this time, the children are dismissed to their classes. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11 says this, That as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my, that is God's word, be that goes out of my mouth, It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, 
and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is always true, and it always accomplishes what he sets out to do with it. And so, as well, not only the promises he's spoken, uh, such as these in Isaiah, but also the word that we have recorded for us in Scripture, that God's word will fulfill what he purposes. And so that is our prayer this morning, that as we come to hear from the word, we can pray to God knowing that he will do just that, that he will accomplish his purposes in us, in our church, in our lives, for the glory of himself and the advancement of his gospel. Let's pray. God, we recognize your greatness this morning, and we also recognize that even as the one who is Lord of the universe, you are also so gracious to this universe. You are gracious to us, which you have expressed most fully in sending your Son to die in our place. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, that as you are a God who has spoken to us, you've graciously revealed yourself to us and your will to us, that we would heed it, that we would listen well, that we would not only hear these things with our ears, as Ezekiel says, but receive them in our hearts. And ultimately, that as we know you will do, you will fulfill what you say in Isaiah, that you will accomplish your purposes. Accomplish your purposes in us this morning. Use your word to do that. Use your word this morning to work in us, that we might be those who follow Christ more wholeheartedly and spread your fame as we spread the gospel. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 verses uh, really 1 through 25, but we'll, we'll be kind of begin with 4 into 25. Uh, the passage that Matt read for us. I want to begin by uh, just pointing out something. that In our culture, one of the things that we've, we, you'll notice that's highly valued in our society right now is this sort of value of inclusiveness. This idea of including others, everyone is accepted and embraced. Um, even as I was studying this passage, I was at a Starbucks near my house, and there was these two gentlemen next to me conducting an interview. And the prospective employer, at one point, I just found myself very distracted with their conversation. It was quite interesting. He, he go, he starts, at one point, he starts going on and on about how his company is very diverse and very inclusive. And he starts listing all the sort of folks that are in the company. And of course, why is he doing this? He's talking to a, he's interviewing a younger man um, where maybe it's even more the impression that among younger generations, this is even more valued, this idea of inclusiveness and, and diversity and embracing people. Well, one of the things you also see in our society right now is that that principle of inclusiveness is oftentimes seen as in conflict or incompatible with the idea of expecting people to conform to a particular standard. It's, it's incompatible with um, what we would call in Christianity a demands to repent, to, to uh, any sort of change, any sort of thing that would confront them where they are and say, that's not okay. But you actually need to turn from that. What we find in our passage today Really, this passage that looks at this subject, what does it look like when the gospel goes to an unreached area? An area that has not yet heard the gospel, in a sense. We actually see in this passage that those two themes are brought together. This idea that the gospel is a message that goes out to all peoples, and includes all people, and embraces people, 
and yet is also a message that drastically confronts us where we are and calls, it summons us to repent and to change. By way of a recap of where we've been, you may remember that in the chapter just prior to chapter 8, uh, Stephen has been killed. He's been killed as a witness to Christ. And the, the apostles have been witnessing in Jerusalem, and they've been arrested several times. Um, and sort of the leaders at this point, they've had enough. This is sort of the tipping point. They finally say enough is enough, and they kill Stephen in this case. And not only that, but we read in chapter 8, verse 1, that a great persecution then flows out of this. So not only do they kill Stephen, but they're hunting down other believers and persecuting them as well. And one of the results of this in the beginning of chapter 8, as we saw last week, chapter 8, verse 1, is that the believers then scatter. That as, as persecution comes in, it, it causes them to flee. Like all of them, except for the apostles, it says. But with that, as the believers scatter, those who possess an understanding of the gospel, so a consequence of it is that the gospel as well gets scattered. And now for the first time in the book of Acts, we see the gospel going out beyond Jerusalem. What does it look like when the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem to unreached people? And so we begin in verse 4. In verse 4, it says this, if you look in your Bible with me. Now, those who were scattered from this persecution, they went out preaching the word. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, this word preaching here, we hear that word and sometimes you think, well, it's, it's sort of what I'm doing right now. It's sort of the, maybe it's the paid minister, um, something they do on a Sunday morning in a church, Okay, but this word preaching maybe could be better translated because it, it actually comes from the same word as the word gospel. It's what we today would call evangelizing. It's the idea of, it's literally to gospel, to share the gospel. And do you notice who's doing this gospeling, who's sharing this gospel? It's ordinary believers. Those who were scattered. That, that's, that's, that's not just leaders, that's not just pastors as we would say. But everybody who was scattered, those who were scattered, were evangelizing. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. These are non-apostles, in other words. These are ordinary folks. What's the assumption here? The assumption is that believers are those who share the gospel. Such that wherever believers go, if they're going to get scattered, you can expect that the gospel as well is going to be shared wherever they go which is worth reflecting on for our own lives as individual believers and as a church, is are we the sort of people where, where it's, it could be assumed that wherever we go, you can expect the gospel is going to get shared there. That is, as, as Dan was talking about in Acts 6, that's 6 a couple weeks prior, that the work of the ministry, and particularly here, the work of evangelism is not the job just of the pastors, but it's, it's, it's a shared mission. We, we, we all partake in owning that mission. And this has the effect then, this scattering of the gospel has the effect of fulfilling Acts 1.8. So you may remember, and if you want to turn back to chapter 1 verse 8 and just look at this, you may remember up until this point, as we said, the, the ministry has been secluded in uh, Jerusalem in particular. And so they've been ministering in Jerusalem. But as Acts 1.8 says, Jesus told them 
You are to wait to receive the Spirit, who will then empower you to be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, which they've done, but also in Judea, the surrounding region, and then into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what do we see here in verse 5? That Philip, as an example of someone who is scattered, he went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. That Christ is using this persecution, in other words, something that we might normally think would suppress the gospel. Christ is using this persecution sovereignly as a way of spreading his gospel. That he can't be stopped. That God, as we see and elsewhere in scripture, he says that he uses good or he uses evil for good. Use something like a persecution to spread his people out to share the gospel. And believer, isn't this true of our own lives as well? If you think about your own life and you, life and you look back on it, aren't there moments where God has so placed us in a position to serve him? Where in order to do that, he's put us maybe into circumstances that we would have never chosen for ourselves. But in so doing, it gives us an opportunity to serve him that we wouldn't have had otherwise. I know that's true of my own life. And so what do we see as the result here? We see in verse 6 that the crowds, with one accord, they pay attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and they, and they saw the signs that he did, they're, they're paying attention to the gospel that, that, that Luke just said he's preaching. They're convicted of it. They believe. And these signs, these miracles, they, they serve as signs. They point back to the gospel. They show the truthfulness of his testimony. And so in verse 7, where we see these examples of some of these signs, that there are unclean spirits, they're crying out with a loud voice, they come out of those who had them, that as, the, as God's kingdom comes in, it, it makes sense, that it shows that God's kingdom is pushing back the forces of darkness. And then there's many here who are paralyzed and lame, they're being healed, that, that these things, that the effects of living in a fallen world are being remedied and reversed. And so there's much joy in that city. But then we get this in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was somebody great. And they had all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest of them, saying that this man is the power of God that is called great. They believed his own sort of press releases about himself. They were duped into following him. He is sort of, they, they viewed him as this ex, sort of exhibiting the power of, of the gods. And so they, they all paid attention to him, verse 11, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. In other words, this is showing us the situation out of which these people are converted. Showing us the, the bondage, the captivity, out of which they're freed when they believe the gospel. And so we see that in verse 12. We see that when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, these folks were baptized, as, as folks do when they believe. In, in according to Acts in the Bible, we see that they get baptized, both men and women, and even Simon. Even Simon himself is said to have believed. And after being baptized, he's baptized as well. He continues with Philip. 
and, and seeing the signs and great miracles that Philip was performing, or for that Philip was performing, Simon was amazed. And you'll notice there's this transfer. There's this, the, the, the phrase paid attention gets used three times in this verse, or in these verses. Paid attention. So you'll notice in verses 10 and 11, it talks about how the folks paid attention to Simon. They were, they were sort of captivated by his sorcery, by his magic. But in verse 6, it becomes that they pay attention to the gospel that Philip is preaching. This is the same phrase that will be used to when God opens the eyes of Lydia to pay attention to what Paul is preaching. That God is so working in this community as Philip preaches that they're released from their bondage under their captivity under Simon, so to say, and now no longer are they paying, paying attention to him, they're paying attention to the gospel. But then we get this interesting circumstance in verses 14 through 17. That when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they, they believed in the gospel, in other words, they sent to Samaria two representatives of the apostles, namely Peter and John. And, and these, Peter and John here, they came down and they prayed for the Samaritans that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. Well, why would they do that? Why would they pray? I mean, don't, doesn't everyone who believes on Jesus, don't they get the Spirit? Well, in verse 16, we get the explanation. Because the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. But in this case, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which of course is, is Luke's way of saying, like, normally in the book of Acts, when someone believes, and of course when someone believes, they get baptized, they are those who have the Spirit. But he points out to us something unusual is happening here. In this particular case, they had only believed and been baptized, and they hadn't yet received the Spirit. And so in verse 17, the apostles laid their hands on them, having prayed, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what do we, what do we make of this? This is a bizarre circumstance. I think first we need to note that this is not something that is normal. This is not something that we should be expecting, um, for instance, to be happening today. So there are some folks um, like Pentecostal theology would hold that there is that you there's a point in time where you believe on Christ and you're saved, and yet there's a subsequent time, sometime later, where you can receive the Spirit in a more miraculous sense, oftentimes accompanied by speaking in tongues. But what we see in the Bible, in the New Testament, even in the Book of Acts, is that this sort of thing is not normal. So, for example, even in chapter ten. Cornelius, when he believes the gospel, he receives the Spirit immediately. So it would be false of us to assume that this somehow creates a pattern that we should expect today. It's not what we see elsewhere in the New Testament where Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and and in Galatians and and Romans 8 and other passages, he can assume that those who are believers have the Spirit. And so this isn't normal. In fact, the fact that Luke goes out of his way to say that they said to show He says that precisely because this is unusual. If if it wasn't unusual, there wouldn't be a point of saying that. And so there seems to be a unique reason that the Spirit is delayed in this case. And and it's helpful at this point to pay attention to maybe some of the background that's at play here. So, 
we think about what we know of Samaria. Maybe think about what you know of Samaria in the Old Testament. Um, sort of the traditional view, and there's biblical reason for understanding it this way, is that Samaria, um, that region, when, when God sent Assyria to punish the northern tribes of Israel and take them into exile, not only did Assyria remove people into exile, but one of their policies was to take people from other regions and to move them into a place like Samaria. So that uh, the Samaritans, it would seem, uh, would have began to intermarry with these folks. And the, the issue with intermarrying in this case would have been that there starts to be not only a mingling in the marriage, but there is a mingling in the religion. And so they start to go after, they start to embrace the gods of the spouses. And we already know from Israel's history that they already are struggling with going after the gods of the other nations. That's exactly why Assyria would have come to uh, bring them into exile anyways. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, we get these unique sort of distinct groups. You have, Israel, you have Ju- Judah uh, and, and the area of Jerusalem where there's sort of this orthodox Jewish be- belief and religion. And then you have um, what would have been viewed as something deviant in Samaria. They would have viewed themselves as, as, as something of a distinct version, maybe somewhat similar. So they still had an idea of something like a Messiah. They, uh, they, would, they only held to the first five books of the Bible. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. So they, they sort of made their differences. And of course, they viewed themselves as the pure religion, and the Jewish people in Jerusalem viewed themselves as the pure religion. And of course, as any time in history when people have differences, it often becomes an opportunity for people to show animosity towards one another. And so by the time we come to the New Testament, we see this in the New Testament. There's a mutual sort of hatred um, and, dis- and disrespect and dislike for one another. So that Jesus, for example, in his, his parable of the Good Samaritan, well, why is the Good Samaritan in that story so provocative? Because the good neighbor is a Samaritan. And that's, that's not something a Jewish person would want to hear. Or in John 4, when Jesus goes and talks to the Samaritan woman, uh, it, we, we understand that the Jewish people of that time, they wouldn't have even wanted to go through that region. They would have wanted to travel around it. And yet Jesus goes into Samaria. And not only that, but he talks to a Samaritan woman. And that's shocking. That's, that's remarkable because the passage tells us that the Jewish people didn't have relations with the Samaritans. In fact, we know from Josephus, a Jewish historian, that when a group of Jewish people did that at one time, they got jumped and attacked by a bunch of Samaritans. These folks didn't like each other. And so, when we read this story, we've already read that the gospel goes out to them, Philip preaches, but that's, that's incredible. That when, when, first of all, that when Philip flees, that he even goes to Samaria. When he goes there, that he preaches the gospel to them? Okay, but not only that, but that they believe the gospel? Like, this is remarkable. And so it begins to create the question, what is to come of this? The Samaritans have received the word of God, but will the Samaritans be received in turn? Or will it be just like we've had? The Samaritans have their own sort of religion over there, and the Jewish people have their religion. We're going to kind of stay our own two separate groups. You do your, your thing, we do our thing. And so I think the reason, the particular reason that 
Christ delays his pouring out of the Spirit in this case is that as the apostles come, one of the things we understand about the apostles is that they functioned as delegates of Christ. They represented Christ's authority on earth in the church. And so as the apostles come and they sort of witness and accompany and in some ways they seem to even administer the the Spirit being poured out, it's a way for them to say, these guys are legit. These guys are included. We are one people with the Samaritans. As, 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 as Jesus told uh, the, the apostles in John 20, verse 23, that those to whom you extend the forgiveness of sins are forgiven. And when the apostles come and they, they say, these folks here, they have the same spirit as the folks back in Jerusalem at Pentecost. A sort of a Samaritan Pentecost is happening here. Pentecost has hit the road. It's a way of saying these folks are to be included. And so in verse 25, it says that after the apostles had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many of the villages in Samaria. The Samaritans have been included in the gospel. And this makes sense too when we understand um, sort of how this passage works throughout the rest of the book. So in many ways, the Samaritans here are serving as a bridge a bridge people. They're, the gospel is about to go to the Gentiles. Okay, so, so Paul is about to be converted. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to go on his first missionary journey, which will eventually climax in uh, Acts 15, in, in the Jerusalem Council, where, they, where they, the believers gather to say, what do we do about the fact that a bunch of Gentiles have come to faith? Or in chapter 10 and 11, Peter, he preaches the gospel, gospel to Cornelius, who represents the Gentiles. And, and what, they, what they realize is Peter says, the same spirit that we received was given to these Gentiles. In other words, they're part of the same people as us. They have, they have a share in these promises as well. And so the Samaritans, in some way, they serve as a bridge, sort of this half-Jewish, half-Gentile group, getting us ready for that. Even in the second half of chapter 8, as Dan's going to preach next week, the gospel then goes, Philip preaches to, uh, to, to the Ethiopian eunuch. A eunuch who, by nature of being a eunuch, would have been in some way restricted from full participation in the people of God. The first theme in this passage is that the gospel extends and includes and embraces all types of people. It includes every type of person, so long as you meet this one criteria, as Peter says, those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so what do we learn from this? First of all, is that God's grace goes out to any and each person who calls on God's name. We, we, can, we can revel and praise God for his grace, that he offers grace to us. That he offered, none of us deserve this grace. And yet he's giving this grace to people who don't deserve it. It's going out. And that if we're a believer today, that's the same thing for us. That we are people who have received grace based on the death of Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer yet, this grace is offered to you. This grace is offered to you as well. And maybe you're someone here who can relate to the Samaritans. Maybe you've been rejected Maybe you're sort of, you view yourself as someone who's been despised. Maybe even by the religious community, like in this passage. God's grace goes out to you. God's grace says you are to be included if you so just call on the name of the Lord. 
His grace is for you. This also has implications for the church, for us who are believers. That if you think about what would this have meant to the to the Jewish and Samaritans in this in this individual this uh, original setting here, what would this have meant for them? It, it's going to dismantle any sort of animosity or disdain they might ha- have for each other. That as, as the Jewish people wouldn't have wanted to go through Samaria, they would have gone around it. We can ask ourselves, are there, are there people maybe in parts of Milwaukee, in part of this city, where we, we wouldn't want to go near them? We wouldn't want to, maybe we wouldn't say it like that, but it's sort of, it's in there. It, it's sort of an indication of something in our hearts that we feel towards those people. This, this, this passage shows us that the gospel is, is incompatible with partiality. This, this theme we see in James 2 where you treat some people one way, you treat other people another way. That we are all brought together as one. There is not a Samaritan church and a Jewish church and fill in the gaps for our contemporary versions of that. We have a, and although we may meet in different places and gather as separate individual churches, we are one, this passage shows us. We're one people with the same spirit. As Paul says, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and as Acts says, one spirit. I think this passage should stir in us a desire to see God's grace reach all people. We want to see this happen today. Not only does it negatively dismantle sort of sinful attitudes, but positively it should spur us on to actively build bridges to those people, to all people. Or lastly, I think about the fact that, that, that this group may have seemed really distant and far off. And are there, are there folks today that we think, well, they're just so distant from Christianity. They're so, they're so far away from the gospel. God, they're never going to become believers. Do we believe that the gospel is powerful enough to save them who seem far off? Because here's the thing. All of us, spiritually speaking, are far off. The gospel, the effect of the gospel is not dependent on somehow our ability to receive it. It's God's grace that will work that in us. And so do we believe that the gospel is powerful to save, as Paul says in Romans 1? The second theme that I think we see in this passage is this idea that the gospel, as it goes out, it is preserved. Its integrity is not compromised. Because as the gospel goes out, it and it challenges those to whom it extends. So the gospel extends, but the question I think that would have been in, in, in the mind of the original reader here, as we think, how does this passage work in the book of Acts, is as the gospel goes out to a group like the Samaritans, is its integrity going to remain intact? Or is it going to become compromised? Is it sort of going to include all the false teaching and false practices that we see in a case with like Simon the Magician? You can think of the Samaritans. They would have been something like today we as Christians would view maybe Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses where they would claim to be believers. I googled it and they, they do those two groups do claim to be believers and, and Christians I should say. They claim to be Christians, and yet we understand that they deny essential teachings of what it means to be a Christian. And so they're, this, they're sort of like this religiously deviant group. And you could imagine, from the Jewish perspective, like if the gospel goes out to them, is it going to compromise the gospel? And so why does Luke, for example, make this point of bringing up Simon? And I think he teaches us this through Simon, is that the gospel not only includes, but it also confronts those that it includes. 
In other words, Christianity isn't this amorphous religion that incorporates the false teaching and the sinful lifestyle of those who embrace it. Yes, the gospel meets us where we are, but it is also a message of repentance that that calls us then to turn that's what repentance means to turn from where we've been and simon is an example of this that is that as the gospel is accepted by the samaritans it becomes quite clear from the example of simon that the gospel is incompatible with their former way of life and so we saw this in the conversion of the Samaria, of Samaria that, that, that as they believed, what did they do, presumably? Presumably they're leaving behind the occult. They're leaving behind. They're turning from their former corrupt spirituality because, as the passage says, they no longer paid attention to Simon, but they're paying attention to Philip. And this is uh, it's worth noting here, too, that as we go through the book of Acts, one could gain the impression, falsely, that sort of as Christianity has its miracles... They're sort of on par with the, the magic, the pagan occult that we see in the Roman world that we see in the book of Acts. That sort of Christianity has its alternative version of magic, and that's these miracles. But what do we see in the book of Acts, in a case like this and elsewhere, is that the two are seen as distinct. Christianity understands its miracles not as some form of pagan magic, but actually when the gospel comes to areas that are saturated with the occult, and people are saved, that the occult gets pushed back. And so we see that here with the case of Simon. We've already seen hints that even as Samaria converts, that there's something deviant, there's something different about Simon. There's something suspect in him. So in verse 6, whereas the people pay attention, as we said, to the message that Philip is preaching, Simon seems to be sort of um, obsessed with the miracles. He's fixated on the, on the wonder working. And, and we, again, we get this repetition three times of this word amazed in this case. Amazed. In verse 9 and 11, it talks about how the people had been amazed by Simon and his magic. And so, Simon is said in verse 13 to be amazed by Philip. And his miracles, that in a similar way, in other words, as the people were sort of infatuated and, and, and amazed by what Simon could do, Simon now has a similar sort of amazement with what Philip can do, which of course is an interesting point, that, that if Simon is amazed with what Philip can do, it either means that what Simon was doing was fake, and somehow he sees that Philip's is legit, or that if Simon somehow could do these things by the power of of demons or something like that, that he nonetheless recognizes that what Philip is doing is, is highly superior. And so we see, though, in verse 13, notice what Philip or what Simon does when he converts. He follows Philip around. His focus isn't on the gospel. His focus is on Philip and the miracles Philip is doing. It's like he's following him around being like, man, if I could learn how to do what he's doing, I'm interested in that. If I could get a piece of this, he's obsessed with the miracles. And yet the passage describes him as a believer, you'll notice. It describes him as a believer in verse 13. He even says that he gets baptized, that he, he gives off the impression to others such that they baptize him. And yet later in the passage, as Matt read, it seems more likely than not that he's probably not genuinely saved based on what Peter says to him, which teaches us 
that there is such a thing in that as the Bible describes as superficial faith. So James 2 will ask this question. It says that, that, that does a faith that does not have works that accompany it, is that a saving faith? And his answer is no. And yet he still calls it a faith. Is that faith a saving faith? There's something that gives sort of the formality and, and feel of faith, and yet it's not genuine faith. One can give the impression of faith and yet not be a true believer in any saving sense, in other words. You see, as in the case of Simon, true saving faith is more than being impressed with what, what Christianity has to offer. You see, Simon, he quote-unquote believed because he saw the gospel as a means to personal gain. But truth-saving faith, on the other hand, it entails a deep brokenness over sin, not merely a fear of God's punishment and, and a desperation for God's grace. A desperation for his grace. And so we see what Simon requests in verse 18 and following. It says this, that when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, that as they laid their hands on, he, that somehow they understood the Spirit was given, he offers them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. The Greek is, is, is basically this, to hell with you and your money. It's, it's, a, it's a curse that he issues on them. That's what the word perish means. To hell. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon responded this way. He said, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, Simon thought that this power to distribute the Spirit as he saw it was something that could be bought like a magic trick. Something that maybe he could add to his magic act and, and sort of, this is my opportunity to become Simon the Sorcerer 2.0. You know, and maybe with this new awesome trick, I can become even more famous and I can increase my revenue. Like this is a really good opportunity for me. So I was impressed with Philip and now these apostles show up and they got even something better. Simon is still operating, in other, in other words, under an occult mindset. This idea that somehow he can have God in his pocket, and if he uses some formulas and, and does some little magic trick, that somehow we can pull the levers and God will be manipulated and do what we want. Even when he says in verse 24, uh, Peter, can you please pray for me? Like, on the one hand, we wonder, is he genuinely sorrowful and genuinely repentant? Or is he just fearing punishment? It's hard to say. But I also wonder if it's possible a third option is that he's viewing Peter as, as something of a diviner. Like he's still in the occult mindset where it's like, you have an in with this God. You, 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 know, you know the ways to pull the levers with this God. Please do something between me and him to sort of make him nice with me. He's still viewing things like the pagans would have viewed the gods. That you can somehow, you scratch their back and they'll scratch your back. You can manipulate them. 
But Peter's rebuke is this. You can't do that with this God. And in this particular case, you thought you could buy what is God's gift. It's a gift. You can't buy it. You can't buy the power to distribute the spirit, in other words. It's not some magic trick you can buy. Why? Because as we see in the book of Acts, the spirit is oftentimes called the gift of the spirit. God gives us the spirit by his grace. It's not something you can buy and manipulate. It's something God freely gives. And isn't that the way that we relate to to God as a whole as well? That in every way in our life, the only terms on which we relate to God is grace. And yet oftentimes in our own life, we can kind of fall prey to a similar Simon mindset where we think, you know, if I, if I sort of behave this way, God will be more pleased with me and more happy with me, and maybe he'll bless me a little bit. Or if I, if I don't do this, then maybe he's going to bring this on me. And sort of if I, if I pull these strings, if I, God, if I, if, if I can barter with you or scratch your back, you'll scratch my back. But the problem with all of that is God, we can't, we can't expect God to scratch our back because we're scratching his back because he doesn't have a back to be scratched. And I'm not talking physical back. I'm talking about the fact that God needs nothing from us. You can't barter with God because we have no chips to offer him. What does God lack that somehow we can give him? The old theologians would describe this as God's aseity. His, his, he's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He needs nothing. And that means that the only way we can ever relate to God is by grace. Because we have nothing we can offer him that he needs from us. And not only so, but we've actually sinned and we deserve his wrath. Which shows us even more that the, that the measure of which we relate to God on his grace is most fully expressed in the gospel, is it not? Where, he, where the only way we can ever approach God and have our relationship with God restored is that he has taken the initiative. He has sent his son to die in our place. And so Simon, he thinks that Christianity is something that can just be added on, like something he can, he can sort of incorporate and tack on to his magic act in his religion. Not something that confronts his corrupt spirituality. Not something that actually demands repentance from him. And many of us are like Simon. We want to utilize Christianity as something to fulfill what we want out of it. And thereby we treat it as this something of an add-on to our otherwise unaffected lives. So we want, the, we want Christianity on our terms. We don't want it to mess with our lives. But the gospel is not an add-on that exists merely to improve our lives as we know them. The gospel entails a summons from God to completely overhaul our lives according to his purposes. So we see in the case of Simon, our second theme is that the gospel not only embraces and includes all people, but it confronts those it includes. It demands a turning, a repentance from those who receive it. And this has incredible implications for what we we describe in missiology and missions as contextualization. The idea that that as the gospel goes, it, it goes out to all people. And as it goes out to all people, Christianity has this amazing way of adapting to culture of adapting to different peoples. And yet, in each and every culture, there will inevitably be sinful aspects of that culture that Christianity is also going to confront and challenge. That it will not adapt to, but it will push against those things. 
And so when we look at this passage, we've seen in the case of Simon, as an example, what it looks like when the gospel comes to Samaria. What sort of things it demands of change in them. But it's worth asking of us, what does it look like when the gospel comes to our culture, to our society, to Milwaukee, to us? We can think of many examples. I think the gospel is going to confront our materialism, our consumerism, our obsession with wealth and possessions, putting our stock in those things. It's going to confront how we spend our money, how we spend our time. I think it's going to challenge what we find in our culture as one of the highest idolatries of our society, which is this idolatry of comfort and convenience, something that as Christians is going to threaten and oppose Christ's call to us to make significant sacrifices in following him. It's going to confront a sense of autonomy and individualism, this idea, the American spirit, that we are self-reliant. The gospel says you are hardly self-reliant. You need God. It's going to confront elevation of our, of our careers and, and placing, misplacing, I should say, our sense of worth in those careers and our, and our societal status. It's going to confront those who are yielding into substance abuse. It's going to confront our ethics. It's going to challenge our morals. It's going to, it may even challenge your sexuality. It's going to challenge our entertainment choices and yes, even our politics because no partisan group out there is going to accurately reflect in the sinful society in which we live, accurately reflect the values of the kingdom. We expect that there are going to be philosophies in our society prevailing ideas and values that the Christian message is going to come into conflict with. And so we have to be, as Christians, we have to, be exer- we have to exercise discernment. We have to be watchful of these things. As, as Paul says in Romans 12, we need to be conformed not to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we can think of some of those prevailing philosophies. The idea of relativism. That truth is sort of all truth is okay. That truth is personal. Religion is just a private affair. This idea of pluralism, that all, all sort of religious expressions are equally valid and all lead to the same place. It challenges our self-expression. This idea of you be you. Just be who you are. The gospel says you don't want to be who you are. Because who you are, as Jesus says, out of the heart flows all manner of wickedness. The gospel is going to challenge these things. And not only is it going to challenge them in our own lives, but it's also going to challenge us to live out these things and be witnesses to the gospel, even where this puts us at odds with others. And that in a society where we value the virtue of being nice and never conflicting with others. We could go on. These are just things that I've thought of. The gospel is going to confront us as far as sin is found. And, and, and so it's going to challenge beliefs and values and lifestyle. We could summarize it this way, that Christ is creating himself a new people. A new people. But believer, as, as he does so, remember, our hope is not in ourselves. That as Philip came to Samaria, he preached the gospel, which is what changed these, these folks. 
It wasn't any sense of self-reformation that they could somehow clean up their lives. But Philip preached the gospel, the good news of God reinstating his kingdom and saving us through the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel then, it confronts us with the need to repent. But as it does so, it also meets us with the grace of this one Jesus. If it was up to us to change and reform ourselves, that we would all be doomed. We simply don't have it within us. And we don't have an ability to remove the guilt and the stain of our past sins. But in Christ's death, we find that forgiveness. And not only do we find forgiveness, but Christ gives us grace that renews, transforms, enables our repentance, and empowers us to change. Let's pray.